0: part two chapter nineteen of war and peace by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by marianne the charge of the sixth jaegers secured the retreat of the right wing in the centre the action of tushin's forgotten battery which had succeeded in setting the village of schoengrven on fire retarded the advance of the french they stopped to put out the conflagration which the wind was spreading, and thus gave time to retreat. The retirement of the center through the ravine was accomplished hastily and noisily, but there was no sign of demoralization. But the left wing, consisting of the infantry of the Azov and Podolian regiments, and the Pavlograd Hussars, which was attacked simultaneously and outflanked by overwhelming numbers of the French, under the command of Lanz, was defeated bagration had sent Zerkov to the general in command of the left wing with orders to retreat slowly Zerkov, raising his hand to his cap struck spurs into his horse and swiftly dashed off but he had not more than got out of bagration's sight than his courage began to fail him irresistible fear came over him and he could not make up his mind to go where it seemed to him so perilous he rode over to the army of the left wing but he did not dare press forward to the front where there was firing and he began to search for the general and the officers where there was no possibility of finding them and therefore the order was not delivered the command of the left wing fell by order of seniority to the regimental commander of that same brigade which had been reviewed at brunnau by kutuzov and in which dolokhof served as a private the command of the extreme left wing was entrusted to the colonel of the Pavlogod regiment, in which Rostov served. This led to a serious misunderstanding. The two commanders had become involved in a violent quarrel, and at the very time when the right wing was in the thick of the battle and the French had already begun to retreat, the two commanders were absorbed in a dispute, each doing his best to affront the other. The troops, both infantry and cavalry, were very far from being prepared for the work before them. The men, from private to general, were not expecting an engagement, and were calmly occupying themselves with the ordinary pursuits of peace. The cavalrymen engaged in feeding their horses, the infantry in collecting firewood. "'He's my senior,' however, in rank, the German colonel of Hussars was saying, flushing and addressing the aide who had just ridden up to him. So let him do as he pleases.' I cannot sacrifice my hussars. Bugler, sound the retreat. But the battle came upon them in hot haste. Cannonade and musketry, all in confusion, thundered and rattled at their right and center, and the capotes of Lane's sharpshooters were already crossing the milldam and forming on this side two gunshots away. The infantry-general, with his tottering gait, went to his horse, and mounting and drawing himself up very straight and tall, rode off to the Pavlograd commander. The two men met with polite bows, and with concealed hatred in their hearts. "'Once for all, Colonel,' said the General, "'I cannot leave half of my men in the woods. I beg of you—I really beg of you,' he repeated the word, "'to draw up in position and meet the charge.' "'I beg of you not to meddle with my affairs,' replied the Colonel angrily. "'If you were a cavalryman—' "'I am not a cavalryman, Colonel, but I am a Russian general. And if you don't know this—' "'I know it very well, Your Excellency,' cried the Colonel, suddenly starting up his horse and turning purple with rage. "'Wouldn't you like to come to the line? And then you can see that this position is as bad as it could be. I do not care to destroy my regiment for your gratification.' "'You forget yourself, Colonel.' I am not seeking my own gratification, and I will not permit this to be said. The general, accepting the colonel's invitation as a challenge of courage, swelled out his chest and, frowning, rode forward with him in the direction of the outposts as though all their dispute were to be settled there at the front under the fire of the enemy. They reached the outposts, a few bullets flew over them, and they paused and were silent. There was no reason for inspecting the outposts, since, from the place where they had been before, it was perfectly evident that there was no chance for cavalry to maneuver among the bushes and gullies, and that the French were outflanking the left wing. The general and colonel looked at each other with fierce and significant eyes, like two gamecocks, all ready for battle, and each waited vainly for the other to show a sign of cowardice. Both stood the test. As there was nothing for them to say— and as neither wished to give the other a chance to assert that he had been the first to retire from exposure to the enemy's fire, they would have stood there a long time, each manifesting his bravado, if at this time they had not heard in the forest, almost directly behind them, the crackling of musketry and a dull, confused yell. The French had fallen on the soldiery scattered through the forest gathering firewood. It was now impossible for the hussars to retreat at the same time with the infantry, they were already cut off by the french line at the left now although the locality was most unpropitious it was absolutely necessary to fight their way through to reach the road beyond the squadron in which Rostov served had barely time to mount their horses before they found themselves face to face with the enemy again as at the bridge over inns between the squadron and the line of the enemy there was no one and between them lay that terrible gap of the unknown and the dreadful, like the born that divides the living from the dead. All these men felt conscious of that gap, and were occupied by the question whether they should pass beyond it or not, and how they should cross it. The colonel came galloping along the front, and angrily replied to the questions of his officers, and like a man who in despair insists on his own way, thundered out some command no one said anything definitely but someone one had given the squadron an idea that there was to be a charge the command to fall in was given then sabres were drawn with a clash but as yet no one stirred the army of the left wing and the infantry and the hussars felt that their leaders did not know what to do and the indecision of the commanders communicated itself to the soldiers if they would only hurry hurry thought rostof feeling that at last the time was at hand for participating in the intoxication of a charge of which he had heard so much from his comrades, the hussars. "'Espogom, forward, one rang out Denisov's voice. "'Twat!' In the front rank, the haunches of the horses began to rise and fall. Grachik began to pull on the reins and dashed ahead. At the right, Rostov could see the forward ranks of his hussars but farther in front there was a dark streak, which he could not make out distinctly, but supposed to be the enemy. Reports were heard, but in the distance. "'Charge!' rang the command, and Rostov felt how his check broke into a gallop and seemed to strain every nerve. He realized that his division was dashing forward, and it became more and more exciting to him. He noticed a solitary tree just abreast of him— At first this tree had been in front of him, in the very centre of that line which seemed so terrible. But now he had passed beyond it, and there was not only nothing terrible about it, but it seemed ever more and more jolly and lively. "'Ugh! How I will slash at them!' thought Rostov, as he grasped the handle of his sabre. "'Hurrah! Rah! Rah! Rah!' rang the cheers in the distance. "'Now let us be at them, if ever!' thought rostof striking the spurs into grachuk and overtaking the others he urged him to the top of his speed the enemy were already in sight before him suddenly something like an enormous lash cracked all along the squadron rostof raised his sabre in readiness to strike but just at that instant nikitendo a hussar galloping in front of him swerved aside from him and rostof felt as in a dream That he was being carried with unnatural swiftness forward and yet was not moving from the spot. A hussar whom he recognized as Bandarchuk was galloping behind him and looked at him gravely. Bandarchuk's horse shied and he dashed by him. What does it mean? Am I not moving? Have I fallen? Am I dead? These questions Rostov asked and answered in a breath. He was alone in the middle of the field. In place of the galloping horses and backs of the hussars, he saw all around him the solid earth and stubble. Warm blood was under him. No, I am wounded, and my horse is killed. Grechek raised himself on his forelegs, but fell back, pinning down his rider's foot. From the horse's head a stream of blood was flowing. The horse struggled, but could not rise. Rostov tried to get to his feet, but likewise fell back his sabre Tasha had caught in the saddle. Where our men were, where the French were, he could not tell. There was no one around him. Freeing his leg, he got up. Where, in which direction, is now that line which so clearly separated the two armies, he asked himself, and could find no answer. Has something bad happened to me? Is this the way things take place, and what must be done in such circumstances?' he asked himself again, as he got to his feet. And at this time he began to feel as though something extra were hanging to his benumbed left arm. His wrist seemed to belong to another person. He looked at his hand, but could find no trace of blood on it. "'There, now! Here are our fellows!' he exclaimed mentally, with joy, perceiving a few running toward him. "'They will help me!' In front of these men ran one in a foreign-looking shako and in a blue capote. He was dark and sunburnt, and had a hooked nose. Two or three others were running at his heels. One of them said something in a language that was strange and un-Russian. Surrounded by a similar set of men, in the same sort of shakos, stood a Russian hussar. His hands were held just behind him. They were holding his horse is our man really taken prisoner yes and will they take me too who are these men rostov kept asking himself not crediting his own eyes can they be the french he gazed at the oncoming strangers and in spite of the fact that only a second before he had been dashing forward solely for the purpose of overtaking and hacking down these same frenchmen their proximity now seemed to him so terrible that he could not trust his own eyes who are they Why are they running? Are they running at me? And why? Is it to kill me? Me, whom everyone loves so? He recollected how he was beloved by his mother, his family, his friends, and the purpose of his enemies to kill him seemed incredible. But perhaps they may. For more than ten seconds he stood, not moving from the spot, and not realizing his situation the foremost frenchman with the hooked nose had now come up so close to him that he could see the expression of his face and the heated foreign-looking features of this man who was coming so swiftly down upon him with fixed bayonet and bated breath filled rostof with horror he grasped his pistol but instead of discharging it flung it at the frenchman and fled into the thicket with all his might he ran not with any of that feeling of doubt and struggle which had possessed him on the bridge at ends but rather with the impulse of a hare trying to escape from the dogs one single fear of losing his happy young life took possession of his whole being swiftly guiding among the heather and with all the intensity with which he had ever run when playing Gorelki, he flew across the field occasionally turning round his pale kindly young face while a chill of horror ran down his back No. I'd better not look round, he said to himself. But as he reached the shelter of the bushes, he glanced round once more. The Frenchmen had slackened their pace, and at the very minute that he glanced round, the foremost runner had just come to a stop and was starting to walk back, shouting something in a loud voice to his comrade behind him. Rostov paused. It cannot be so, he said to himself. It cannot be that they wish to kill me but meantime his left arm became as heavy as though a hundredweight were suspended to it. He could not run another step. The Frenchman also paused and aimed. Rostov shut his eyes and ducked his head. One bullet, then another, flew humming by him. He collected his last remaining energies, took his left arm in his right hand, and hurried into the thicket. Here in the bushes were the Russian rangers. End of chapter 19